So tell me about Mercia and like what, paint a picture for me of what it was like growing up there. So it's not a very big, I think when, when people think of Spain, right away it's Madrid, Barcelona. So it's, it's a small place. It's by the Mediterranean. So it's very sunny. It's actually funny because I think the weather is quite similar to LA. Winters almost don't exist. The sea is really nearby. And yeah, I was very lucky to be born there. I'm very close to my family. I kind of was born in a very sort of strange context. My mom is Argentinian. The whole side of my mom um, is Argentinian and they, they relocated in, in Southeast Spain. And I was born with my parents were very young and uh, all my aunts and uncles were also quite young because both my mom and my dad are the uh, eldest of uh, the brothers and sisters. So I kind of grew up with all my aunts and uncles who my dad has five brothers and sisters. And so that's my mom. And, uh, and it was kind of quite intense. It's funny because a lot of friends that come by and they meet my family, they're like, Paula, like, this is like a Almodovar movie. Like, this is just so crazy. It's just very noisy, lots of people coming in, you know, ding dong, pregnant woman, ding dong, the kids, like, people are like, who are these people? I'm like, it's my, my aunt and uncle. So I was, I was, I've always been used to like a community around me. And I've also always been used to being the youngest. And yeah, I had a very lively, very kind of intense, childhood and my mom having you know moved and traveled a lot when she was a child she was like you know you this is great it's a, a great place to be but I think you need to need to see something else you should just move out and discover what you want to do and experience other things and that's kind of what brought me to Ireland I lived in Ireland for like two years when I was 16 and then Germany I was in Berlin for a while and then London so I haven't really come back to my hometown since I'm 15 years old but I'm still very very close to all my aunts my uncles my grandparents uh, I grew up in their house really so yeah that's kind of my my childhood it's it was just a lot <laughs> that's a, that's incredible when when did art first find its way into your family's life? I mean, as far as you know, within your lineage? Um, so it's a mix of things. I think um, there have been many different influences. And I think that it's also reflected in my work that it's, they're just, I feed off so many different mediums and, and reference. Like my father is a, uh, plays music incredibly. He's an amazing uh, musician. He loves jazz and he's just self-taught. And music was something that was always very present when when I was uh, around him. Um, my mom, being South American, also brought that kind of, just like that different kind of push. We were always listening to Celia Cruz, uh, a lot of Cuban music. And it's funny because to me, that's, that's the kind of thing when you grow up, you, you take it for granted. That's, you know, what it is. But even nowadays, like it's, it's those reference and those ideas come back to me. And it's just part of, of what I was around in a very natural way. And then my family, a lot of people in my family have also 
she's been a lot into like painting and writing and they haven't pursued it as a career, but it's always been there, especially also the craftsmanship of cloth making. Like my grandmother has always been so into making clothes. And I remember she would gather with her best friends once per week and each of us they had like a week allocated and we would get uh, a look done. So, you know, we were, I think we were about four girls, including my mom. So be like, okay, it's Paula's turn. So what do you want? And my mom would be like, I want a tailor jacket this week. And so I was always uh, around that. And uh, my aunt studied fashion design, actually. And I spent a lot of time with her in Madrid as well. My mom would just like send me on a train to see her. So yeah, it's funny because even now, like I'll go through my mom's kind of wardrobes and I'll be like, what's this like crazy dye-dye, you know, t-shirt? And it's like, oh, your great-grandmother was doing that. Like I remember we were doing that with Matt in like uh, Buenos Aires and just like things like that. It's quite funny. I think it's it was always something that my family from both sides, both my, my fathers and my mom were always very open to and curious. I think that's like the main thing. I've always been surrounded by people that were very curious and very eager to like learn new things and discover and be very like hands-on. Is that a trait of Spanish culture or is it just that your family loved to experience kind of artistic, like kind of side gigs or something? I'm not sure if it's a trait of Spanish culture. I mean, maybe it is. I'm, I mean, I've been very lucky that I, my parents, especially my mother, really um, supported me and was always very like, you know, I think if that's what you want to do, you, you must go for it. And that also naturally I've had all those uh, reference and those people around me that had access to um, to techniques that I could learn from and, and knowledge I could I could take from. I don't know if it's, maybe it is. I think in general, people in at least where I come from are very curious and are very open to, they're quite playful. More, maybe more than open, people are like playful. And that's also something I learned quite early on. Like I, I was always allowed to like make mistakes and discover things and be curious. And I think that's also so important when you're a child in order to find your call is to, to be able to just try things out. And my mom always encouraged that. And, and my, my grandparents did as well to, for me to like, you know, I've done so many things. I've tried so much stuff. Like it's just almost silly, but yeah, I was, I was very lucky in that sense. Were your parents intentional with kind of teaching you about, you know, making clothing or music, or was it just that you were around it so much that it just, it was imbued into your daily life. And that's kind of how, you know, art found its way into your life. Honestly, I think like even my aunts always say like, this was a great mistake. Like I, my parents weren't planning on me, you know, coming (laughs) and everyone chipped in. All my aunts, my grandparents helped. And I think everyone was busy. So I just had to like, I was so used to like hang with so many different people and I had to adapt to whatever they were doing. So if it was like the afternoon with my grandpa, my grandmother and her friends making stitching dresses, 
or just sitting down on the side of a studio whilst my father was playing the guitar and being silent or just like going to my aunt who would be going to like a painting class that would be it like I had no choice so I think it was just luck and the fact that I everyone was so generous with me and and I was just so used to like hanging out with so many different people that they were all doing different things that I kind of got used to adapt to that and I sucked in so much from all all those different characters yeah you were exposed to all these different aspects because you had to be yeah yeah and then your mom made wedding dresses for for people did she have a custom wedding dress atelier or did she how how was her studio set up and and what was it like growing up in that environment so my mom still does that and actually it was my her sister who studied fashion design and uh she moved to madrid opened a, a wedding dress uh, atelier um, where I've been a lot and I've spent a lot of time. And my mom actually in the morning, she, my mom studied law and she works for the state. In the morning, she had like a full-time job working at, it's something called fonctionnaire, I don't know, state worker, I, I guess it's a, it's a translation. And she had the free afternoons. And uh, my aunt, because it was doing very well her business in Madrid, decided to open something in South East Spain. But obviously Madrid, Murcia, it's like a five-hour uh, drive. And she told my mom, Hey, why don't you help me out? My mom had never studied fashion. Uh, she had never, she didn't know how to stitch. She didn't know how to do anything, but she's very good with people. And, uh, she's learns very quickly. And after three years, I think my aunt was a little bit overboard with everything. Uh, she found the, the relationship with the clients very complicated. And she, my mom, ask her to buy the business. So that's how she kind of started uh, doing her own thing. So also something quite peculiar about my mother is that in the morning, she is a lawyer, she works for the state. And in the afternoon, she makes wedding dresses. So yeah, someone very disciplined uh, with incredible work ethics. It has also been very inspirational for me because yeah, she's just like so, so hardworking, self-taught. She, I remember coming back from school and it would be like a mess, uh, you know, like the cut, there wouldn't be space for me in the table because they would be cutting the wedding dresses and I'll have to like sit in a corner. And I remember as soon as I'd say, oh, I'm a little bored. My mom would be like, okay, sit here. And I'll be making like buttons for the wedding dresses because sometimes they have like 200 or 300 uh, buttons. So I'll just sit down in a corner and I'll, that's, so I've learned very quickly just never say uh, that I was bored because there would always be something for me to do. And yeah, it is, it's always been very funny to also look at the feedings from, you know, from the inside of the store and kind of listen to the conversations and what's going on. I feel like my mom could almost make a movie and write a book about it because it's really uh, the wedding dress scene. It's, it's quite a wild one. So I always say I sure. never do wedding dresses. <laughs> I feel like you just saying that means that at some point you're going to do a wedding dress. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I hope not, Drew. Literally, that would hunt me down. Like, I'm always like, no, never. I've just seen too much, too many things. It reminds me a little bit of Yoji Yamamoto's story about how he, you know, didn't didn't want to do fashion, but he was around his mom's, you know, dress studio 
all day and kind of fell into fashion. So that's really fascinating. Do you remember when you discovered fashion with a capital F? Do you remember what age you were or what you saw for the first time? I remember very clearly the first time an item of clothing made me feel special. My aunt, Marilla, who studied fashion design, she had gone to London on a trip and she brought back a pair of Dr. Martins for me, purple um, Dr. Martins. And I remember, I must have been like five or six, so vividly, like wearing them and thinking, what, like, this is just so cool. I had never seen anything like that. And it just made me feel so well, so, so good about myself. So I think that that's really like the first time. But to be honest with you, I, I, as I said, it's just been so like interlinked to my upbringing. Like since I was a child, I just remembered, you know, fabric being cut, things being stitched around, around me, embroideries, tie-dyeing. Uh, my grandmother would be like, you know, there's a tablecloth to like, we'll make it ourselves. We'll never buy it. So yeah, but I think fashion capital F, I mean, I don't know if that could be fashion capital F, but yeah, that moment, it's something I remember quite well. I think it is. That first piece is so important, you know, because you just treat it like you know, like it's gold or something. <laughs> so when did you decide that you were going to pursue fashion and go to art school? So I, as you very well kind of said earlier, I never wanted to do fashion. I was just like, I never thought that could be something that would interest me. I loved reading. I was good at school. I, I'll be honest with you, I thought like fashion wasn't that interesting and I looked down at it and I thought it was kind of silly and not very intellectually charged and that just put me off. And when I went to Ireland, I was doing what's called the Living Search, which is like the last years of school. I was doing full science and I wanted to do either medicine or architecture. And actually just, you know, I, as I was about to to decide what to do, I, I was just very torn because I, I was telling my mother, and like, you know, I think maybe somehow I'd like to do something related to art, but I don't know what. And my mom knew about St. Martin's and uh, she had been there. And she's, you know, she knows me very well. She would have never said you should do fashion because I would have been like, what? Like, this makes no sense. But she told me, you know, I'm going to London. Do you want to come with me? And there is a place I think you need to see. And we went to St. Martin's and I remember when I saw the library and I saw how I just had like a look, spent half a day there because it, it was an open day. I was like, okay, actually, you know, Fashion can be something that is very based on research, which is something I love doing. And it's just so technical, which I love as well. And it would allow me to, it's just so broad and it kind of fascinated me. I was like, I want to be here. This is like, I would have never thought of such a place. And that's, that's when I decided to do fashion. That's when I was like, okay, I think it, it makes sense. It's it's very research-based, which I love doing. It's very technical, 
eat, I love pattern cutting, and it just it just kind of made sense when 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 we had that trip to London. So that's that's kind of yeah. Again, my mom. When you made that trip, were you at the age when you were about ready to go to CSM, or was this a little bit? Was this like a couple years earlier, so you still had some time to think about it? I was eighteen, so I would have had to start studying, and uh, and I had no, I had only, I had no portfolio because I hadn't done arts in the in the two final years of school. So I had to put a portfolio together. I had no clue what a portfolio meant. I had never gone to like drawing classes or painting, which is in the Atsi Martins. Normally the, the portfolios to get in are very like drawing heavy. And I was like, okay, so how are we going to do this? And I took a year off to prepare and get to understand a little bit better how, how to make that happen. Were you doing classes at a local school in the meantime, or were you working during that that year off? So at the time, my mother was, uh, her partner was in Berlin and she spent half the time uh, there. Uh, Berlin was still a very affordable place to live in. So uh, my mom was like, why don't you go to Berlin? Drawing classes are going to be much cheaper there. And and yeah, it's like, you know, it's, it's a beautiful capital and, and it will help you. And that's, that's what I did. I moved to Berlin. I was kind of doing some things on the side, working, and I was going to drawing classes. And that's when I applied to what's called Fashion Folio, which is a course that helps you it's like a foundation course, which is in the UK. I think it's almost compulsory if you want to do any art-related career. What was your experience at CSM? What was that like? I, I can imagine when you visited the first time how inspiring it was because the campus is beautiful. You're in this you know, beautiful town, like on the outskirts of London. Um, I'm sure it was magical. When, once you got there... Was it intimidating? Was it what? What were all the feelings you had when you when you first arrived? So I actually first try. I didn't get in, and I remember my mom came with me, and she told me, "You know, you're not gonna get in." And I was like, "Like that's just so." That's also one thing about my mother. She's brutally honest, and she was like, "You're just not ready." Like I've seen all the people's portfolio and like the level, and you're just not there. Um, so I decided to spend some time in South Spain. I was helping my mother and I went on fashion folio. I didn't want to pay for the entire year, which is three, um, trimesters. So I went straight to the last one and it was really hardcore because I had like a third of the time anyone else did, but I just really, really wanted it. And that's when I got in. And I mean, I think a lot of people message me and ask, like, you know, I want to start there. What do you think? Like, would you recommend? And I think it's just a very personal experience. And it also really depends. I think Brexit has really affected uh, the school now. But in general, I think London uh, since Brexit is not the same. But I had an amazing time. I loved it. It's It was very competitive. It was, I think... Very often you just had to find your own way to do things, but I kind of love that. I thrive in those sort of environments where you're kind of left to do your thing. And, and just everyone around me was so talented. That's, I think that's been the best thing about St. Martin's. It wasn't 
necessarily about the the school itself, but like the people around me, like that are still friends. It's just people that are just so good, so eager, so hungry, so open to learn, to discover. We just friends that come from all over the world, different cultures. That was just so amusing. And that's why I spent a lot of time there because I did the foundation and then I did the BA and then the master's and they were like, you need to leave. Um, I would have to, yeah. They I, I was, you out. I went to, yeah, they were like, you have to leave now. But yeah, I, I really, really liked it. Do you remember when everything clicked for you as far as, you know, because your design language is unique and was there a particular moment when you were at school that you figured out what it is that you're going to make? Yeah, I think that was during the master's. And that's why I really wanted to do the master's. I had done, you have, when you do the BA, you have the option to go and do an internship year abroad and work for other brands, which I was super eager to do. I was always like, throughout my BA, I was always working on the side, assisting, doing pattern cutting, finding like, anything, any hustle to like, you know, get money and learn something. So uh, when I went on the year out, actually I worked for a shish for a, a brand based in London, a small brand where I started assisting a button cutter. And then I was just assisting a shish on research. I was coming to Paris to do the sales with him. Um, so I was kind of, it was really interesting because I was part of the entire process. And then I also did an internship at Gucci in Rome, which was very interesting because it was, again, going from like a very small company to like a big giant. And I made loads of friends. People were really nice to me and I really liked it. And I also spent some time at Margiela six months. So I think that was a really key year for me to kind of get a foot on what, you know, the industry really means because I think that's one thing is when you go to uni, you study. Another very different one is when you you just have to work for someone else. It's just very, very different. And I think having a, a taste of, of on working for like big house, medium and like small one, it was just very good to me to, yeah, to kind of get my head around what I wanted to do. And then I got into the master's and I was like, okay, this is like, I've got a year and a half to set the design language that would be my brand and I made the most out of that year I was just so I wanted it so 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 bad and I I felt so privileged to be able to to do that I did thanks to a scholarship from Stella McCartney and that's kind of how how I spent that year and a half doing a lot of research and it's things that I still feed off what what was your experience at Gucci. Were you there with Alessandro Michele or was this before he was there? So it was very interesting because I was there in when the change happened from Frida to Alessandro. And it was actually one of the first times that they had an intern just because it wasn't common. I don't know why, uh, but everyone was so nice to me. And uh, it was very interesting because I was working, we were, I was working with a woman called Ilona, who's really fun. And we were designing the t-shirts for the menswear department. Like it was just something so specific. And 
but I'm, I'm just so curious. I was always asking everyone what they were doing, if I could help. I remember they had, this fascinated me, they had a library and you could order any book you wanted if you needed it for research. And I was like, wait, what? So they would always be like, okay, where's Paula? Well, she's downstairs in the library. And they were like, okay, you can't just every day ask for a book, but you know, you need to be so, a little so bit more So this is quality. how you filled up your library at home? No, <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh my God, this is crazy. You had to leave the, the book there. But no, I, I, I always know. found it fascinating. And everyone was just so nice to me. I work with Davide Rene, who is now creative director of uh, Moschino. Um, yeah, I made great friends and, and mentors. Uh, my friend Michael, who, who eventually was working for the art direction department, someone I, I too uh, very often. And, and yeah, it was really nice because it really felt again like what growing up in, in my hometown had been. Like I've always been used to be like the 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 youngest and being able to like learn from people that had been, you know, around much longer than me. And everyone was just really welcoming and very nice. So I have very good memories from Gucci. Did you have any experience with Alessandro himself? Were you able to work with him or talk to him at all? Yeah. Well, the thing is that I started with Frida and finished with Alessandro. And I think it was maybe like a month and a half. Got it. Overlap. Um, but yeah, I didn't work on like, I mean, I was just an intern and I didn't work a lot with him, but I was present in fittings. And it was that key point for them where they had to change the entire vision. So I think everyone was just like doing research. Stressful, yeah. Exactly, yeah. It was very stressful, but also very, very interesting to to see and to be around. It's interesting how you describe the team at Gucci as being more communal, similar to your to upbringing, and I think that's a beautiful part of. Italian culture, but also Spanish culture is this kind of family aspect and, you know, bringing in the team as if they were, as if they were part of the family. And, and so I'm sure that that made it a familiar, that was a familiar feeling for you and, and kind of helped your first experience. For sure. Honestly, it was just like, people i remember the head designer would make like uh, dinners at his place and i was invited and uh, we had to make tomato sauce and i'll be in charge of chopping the garlic and it just made it much easier and and nicer and i think yeah I, that's what i learned from Gucci. it's like the work environment is so important taking care of your team is so important and creating a space where people feel good is just gonna benefit the design it's going to benefit you the brand and yeah spending time on that is key i think did you go directly from gucci to margella what was that like because that's uh, two different sized brands i mean two brands that are well loved by our community how did that experience change once you went to margella so margella was the one place I really wanted to be at. Like I was just so obsessed to be there. It was so important to me. That was the one place I really wanted to intern. And I was just very like driven to get there. And my best friend was doing an internship there, Ernesto. And uh, he put me in touch with uh, the head designer. 
and uh, I got offered a place there. So, so I moved to Paris and I think it was very interesting on the creative side because we got to work a lot with John and I worked both on the ready to wear and the artisanal collections. And it was just creatively speaking, so free and just so interesting. They rely at least at the time, I don't know now, a lot on interns and we had a voice and a lot of the ideas were coming from us. We had a lot of space to experiment, to really just play. Um, but at the same time, I had a very awful boss who wasn't really nice as opposed to the experience I had just had at uh, Gucci. And that just made it very difficult and very made it very not nice. So that's also another thing I learned that, you know, you can think of the most incredible place and the most incredible house and dream to be there. But if the environment around it is not right, it can really make that experience, you know, awful. Absolutely. What did you learn being around John and kind of watching him work? His curiosity. I think he's so open and he's he's a really good listener. And that's great when when you are creative to actually understand that you don't know it all and you might have people around you that, you know, have a tenth of your experience, but that might have that little something or that little idea and that he really pushed us to experiment and to try things out. We were really encouraged to experiment. And I think that's very smart of him because a lot of the things that actually made it to the catwalk, it was just us playing around in the basement. Yeah, John is really playful. And from what I know about him, it seems like he genuinely enjoys the young people that are around him. And I think that's part of the reason why he's able to be successful in, you know, our day and age, because he absolutely has the skill. I mean, he's a true dressmaker, um, but he loves the young people that are around him. Yeah. And he is very curious, like you said. So I'm sure that was an incredible experience working with him. I mean, it was, he's, it was really amazing. He's one of my favorite designers. Really, really amazing. You then got to work a little bit with Kanye at Yeezy. How did that mm -hmm. experience come about? So I, I knew I really wanted to do my own thing. I didn't know this, like how to get there. But when I got accepted into the masters and I managed to get a sponsorship to pay for it, I was like, okay, this is, that's what I'm going to work towards and then the show happened and i was like okay now what and your your ma show yeah exactly yeah. ma show and then uh fabio bidas who uh who's the director of the masters you know said to me he's always said to me you need to move to paris your place is in paris like your language your world would be much more understood there than in london he's always pushed me to do that I, i'm very stubborn and i was like yeah but london i want to stay in london da, da, da. it's only been a year since less than a year than we, we've moved to paris but anyway he put us in touch ernesto my best friend who i had worked with at margela and i he said you know there's this woman in paris she's amazing you need to meet her her name is vittoria matarese and she is the head of special projects at Palais de tokyo 
we managed to get to Paris. I think we went by bus or something like that. And uh, we rocked in and we're like, hey, so, you know, this is us. And she was like, okay, like, you guys are cute. Like, what do you want? And we were like, we want to do something here at Palais de Tokyo. Like, can we, like, can you help us? And she said, okay, show me your portfolio. Had a look at it. She's like, I like your work. Yeah, I'll give you space. And we were like, wait, what? She's like, yeah, I'll give you space during Couture. Like, you can do something at Palais de Tokyo. So we went back home and we were like, okay, this is crazy. We have like a space at Palais de Tokyo. We need to put a collection together. We had no money. And literally two months. And we thought about it for like five minutes. And we said, we don't know how we're going to do this. But, you know, one thing I've learned in my life is between doing and not doing, always do. That's me personally, because you always learn something about it. You, you figure it out. So we managed to put together a show. It was a mess. It was hectic. We got loads of friends to help, family, people came from all over. And Novamp magazine did an article about it. I was depleted. I thought it was the most silly thing we had done. Why did we put a show together when actually, you know, we didn't really have a plan for a brand. We had no plan to, you know, to start stalking anywhere. I was like, what are we doing? But that actually, I received a call from Kanye because he, he saw those pictures and he liked the work and that led me to a freelance job with him. So that was through, through that project that kind of came out of nowhere and that I thought had been a little bit reckless of me to to do. I received that call and he was like, you know, I, I've seen your work. I think it's great. When you come to LA, I'd love to to meet you and yeah, and to discover your your point of view. So that's how how I started working for him. So after your first show, of course you wanted to sell that collection. Were you working on the sales while also being in Los Angeles, working with him? No. So also what happened, this is all been very organic, very, you know, I had no contacts. I knew no one. Uh, but I think a little bit before, I think we did that show in July and then Kanye called me in August. But whilst we were doing the show, I received a call, uh, I received an email from the street market Ginza and they were like, Hey, we've seen these pictures. Like, can we come to your showroom? And I was like, my showroom, like, I don't have a showroom. I didn't even know what a line sheet was. And I, we convinced our friend to lend us his, uh, living room and we improvised, uh, well, I, you can't even call that a showroom. It was a really reckless place showcase of things and uh, that's how I got my first uh, order and that I produced with my mother in South Spain and at the same time Kanye called and he was like you know why don't you come work for me and I knew I wanted to do my brand and I couldn't be there full time so we agreed that I will come on and do kind of special projects and be between LA and London. So DSM Ginza was your the first store that bought your brand. That's amazing. Dover Street Market Ginza, the the team there is incredible and they Yeah. Um they're they're so great at supporting young designers. What do you think you learned 
from working with Kanye for on those special projects. Are there any takeaways you have from that experience? Oh, I learned so much. It was so tough, but I learned so, so much. And I feel so privileged to have had that time there. Because really, looking back, I'll be honest with you, uh, Drew, I had no clue what I was getting into. Like, I obviously knew who who he was, but I didn't know the extent of what that call meant and the projects I got involved into. Like, I had no idea. Like, I didn't even know what he was, who he was married to. Like, I, I rocked in. Uh, I was, I got flew to LA first time in LA. I obviously in my European mind, I decided to walk to the, uh, studio, uh, five minutes later, I'm in the highway with these cowboy boots. Um, so I just kind of got thrown to this world without even, you know, I just had no clue what was, what I was getting into. I learned so much from him and he was so generous and so genuine and, Again, he's just someone that is so curious and so, yeah, he's so open-minded. And one thing that was amazing about working with him is that very, very often is the case that I show my work to people and especially at the time, and they were like very confused, like we don't really understand what do you do? Like, what can you, is it 3D that you do? Or is it like set design? Or is it like, are you more into textiles? Or And I just talked to him, he saw the work and he got it right away. And all the projects we worked on were just like, they just made sense. So I did so many things. We, I worked on video clips. I remember when we did, I worked on costumes for the Spike Jones clip with, what's the one, you know, you're such a fucking hoe. Oh, yeah, I love it. Yeah. That yeah. one. Um, you, you worked I, on the, you worked on the big kind of square which outfits. Which he's wearing. Hmm. No, which he's wearing. And then loads of research. That's when we also did Pornhub Awards. I had no, I, I'd be also another thing. Like people were like, what the fuck? Like I, he just called me on the spot. He was like, I was in the lake. He's like, you need to come to, like, you need to come to this place. We're doing this thing. And we need to talk about like, you know, uh, the awards that are going to be given, the sculptures of it. I didn't know what I was getting into. So he just rocked in into Pornhubs. I would, I remember I was like wearing this really, random thing and people were like you it's Pornhub awards you you need to glam up this is like (laughs) this is not looking good and we did all these dresses and worked with Vanessa Beecroft on the operas for the Lincoln Center those costumes as well um Sunday service and even some projects that never saw the the light. But I think what's so amazing about Kanye and what's I've always been so I've always admired so much is that he's just so process is so important. It's even more important than the result. You know, the point is not to get this perfect, you know, whatever clip or silhouette or piece of clothing. It's really about discovering and pushing and really trying to make something great, the best you can do. And that's just so rare to find. I just, it's, it's so rare. People are just so driven by numbers, by uh, reviews, by, yeah, hitting targets that it was literally like a playground. I mean, it was very high speed and intensity. It was a lot, but I just, 
I was just thinking to myself, like, this man doesn't need to be doing this, you know? Like, he's good to just go and chill. And he's just so hardworking. And he would be doing feedings until, like, 4 a.m. He would take a, a car and do, like, a Sunday service, like, two hours straight. And I was like, whoa, that's just so... So the passion was just so contagious. When you look back at your experiences at Gucci, Margiela, and Kanye, you know, all of those uh, ateliers are, I'm sure, were so different from each other. Is there anything you took from those experience experiences and put them into kind of how you built your studio? For sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think a Gucci, for sure, is I've learned how important it is to just really take care of your team. Like you are no one. I, I already knew that from my mother and I already knew that from the way I've been brought up. Like your team is, ideas are nothing. In the, they have no legs, you know? Like you really need the force to actually make things happen. So team, I think I learned that at Gucci, like how important it is to take care of the people that, help you and that are part of your ideas and your vision. I think at Margiela, I learned that the hard way as well, because I saw how incredible ideas and research are just not enough. You also need to, to be good to the people around you, but also how you need to let go sometimes and allow your team to bring their, their, their input and to experiment. To, I think that's something I really try to delegate a lot. Also, honestly, because I really trust the people I work with. And if we decided to work with together, it's because I think they're the best. And I've got as much to learn from them as as hopefully they have to learn from me. So so that was Margiela. I think just John is so curious and he's so open to to let you bring your point of view. And Kanye, the drive, like it was just so wild yeah i think that really trying to like we did things that were just so i was just like we did things that i was like it is never this is never gonna happen you know and it did just because he's i think that's also what he's great at he's really good at getting the people and kind of like feeding them that energy and making it happen that belief is so important isn't it yeah, it's so important. And it's very, I don't know about you. I also wanted to talk to you and, and know what you thought, but I think it's very, it's very easy when you are in the grind and you're so uh, having a company, having a brand is, I don't know about you, but I, sometimes I feel like this science, almost like only 15% of, of my everyday, it can be so daunting and it's very easy to, to lose hope sometimes and believe so yeah i just also wanted to know what you what your yeah. thoughts I, I mean i think we're that. i think we're in a similar stage you're generous in saying maybe design is 15 percent. i think it's maybe like five percent <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know and i think that's one of the you know this could be a whole conversation about the speed of our industry and yeah. i think for me that's what it comes down to i am somebody that loves to spend a lot of time in the process of an idea. I've always kind of felt like, you know, for, for me at least, you know, the world doesn't need more brands. 
you know? So like the fact mm-hmm. that the fact that I'm making clothing, you know, I, I want it to be more about the story as opposed to just making product, you know? And so to kind of pursue that idea, you know, I like to really dive in deep to what I'm thinking about, what's, what's kind of moving my spirit at the moment. But, you know, when, when we have to show something every six months, um, you know, and, and some designers are showing, you know, more than that a year, you know, you have to, you know, we have to present something whether we're ready or not. And that's just kind of the reality of it. I think those time constraints do help me. I, I can tend to fall into a more of a perfectionist, um, mm-hmm. you know, way of being as opposed to a, you know, someone who's just okay kind of releasing something if it's half finished, which which is one of the reasons why Kanye has been an inspiration for, you know, for me over the course of my creative life because um, he's not afraid to to put a deadline on something and even if it doesn't yeah. make it or even if it's half finished you know he still is like creating a lot of excitement about what he's doing but yeah i think the design aspect is like you know kind of 5% of it because you're overseeing production you're overseeing development yeah. um you know and in the meantime while you're dealing with numbers and sales and all those things then you're trying to you know find find inspiration but I think it's important to have a at least a moment of your day to do creative work. And I'd, I'd be curious to know for you, how do you set aside your time, you know, to recharge and to kind of focus on the creativity? I've learned this. It's taken me some time to, to learn that. But I have a lot of friends, friends that work in fashion, friends that work in the tech industry, friends that work in in science. And I understood quite early on that this was like a marathon for me and it was going to be a lot of collections and a lot of years and a lot of months. I am the kind of person like I have no limit. Like I could work until like weekends. I could work until like 6am. That's not, it's my passion. You know, I almost, it's funny. I was reading an, uh, an article by Rosalia and she was saying, I would do this for free. And I, completely relate to that like I find it so difficult to put a price to my work just because I like it so much that it seems almost wrong so I would just do it forever but obviously I think it can get counterproductive you know you need to sleep you need to be healthy you need to so I've I've learned to be very disciplined about my time and and about recharging and about setting time aside to exercise, to read, to uh, do whatever makes me, whatever fuels my mind. So I'm just very, very disciplined as a person. So I exercise very often, very frequently. Uh, There is no phone in bed. It's just only reading. And I don't do weekends. I do 10 to 6. And the time we have the studio is sacred. And we've got a lot to get done. And everyone's got to do it. So I just learned to be very disciplined. And I think at one point, I, in my mind, discipline was equal 
you know, something very rigid and that I couldn't be creative enough if, if there was a mess. And actually it's the opposite. I think in order to have the space, both mentally and physically, you need to create an environment where things are done, where there is proper retro planning in place. It's words that sound so boring, I know, and that's what they sounded to me. But now I understand why if you really want to do this for the long run, you need a structure and you need a discipline. And that's just, I've learned was this turn from a hobby and a passion into a business. And, and, and I just realized that I am not alone. I have uh, a team and I have, I have duties and that requires a certain schedule. And, and it's really helped me creatively as well. Is there, is there a way that you structure your mornings before you go into the studio to kind of help you get into that mindset of the day? Yeah, I, I wake up. I, I'm not the kind of person that like wakes up, put the shoes on and leaves. I wake up, I give myself time to like have a tea and cycle to, to the studio. Very often I try to go to the gym before, exercise before. And yeah, when it's, I'm at the studio, it's just really kind of like tunnel. We have meetings in place and very often we know what's going to happen, you know, eight months uh, ahead. Like we are quite, you know, we try to be quite structured just because we are so we're very small and we, we are forced to be very lean in the way uh, we operate the costs and everything. And that just requires, as I said, some discipline structure and some, and so much goes wrong, even though we try to be as um, always prepared. Yeah. So much goes wrong that I think to myself, Oh my God, like how, cause I, I know some people like, you know, finish collections, like, a day before the show and I'm like how like it's just like you can't <laughs> I I couldn't at least yeah how are you how how do you do it is it you feel like how how do I prepare a collection yeah or sometimes there are parts that you know you are finishing last minute sometimes there's an idea that you can't let go of you know and it might For be sure. like a, yeah. a week before but I have yeah. You know, I have a little bit different upbringing than than you do in that I didn't go to art school, so you know I can't I can't make a pattern. I can't uh, you know I can't draw. You know I I can't do fashion illustration. So you know of course I've been doing this for long enough that I've that I've learned how to work. You know with with others to get the vision done. But I think because of that I can't rely on doing something last minute and doing something mm. myself, you know? So when I'm thinking about collection structure, generally I have, I'm very visual in the way I think about things, even, even a structure. So I usually come up with ideas and I almost lay them out, you know, on like a, I, I don't make a mood board in a traditional way. Like, you know, maybe they taught you it at school or how some other mm. designers would do it. The mood board's kind of in my head, but it's more uh, when I'm thinking about the structure of the collection and, you know, the so I'll design yeah. the coats, the jackets, shirts and pants, all kind of based on an idea. And I, I, I will print them out and I'll just put them up 
And I just kind of look at it for a while and I try to find the gaps and the holes. But because I can't sew, you know, and I, and I have friends that do make patterns and sew their own pieces, you know, I, I can't be doing it the night before. I, I have to rely on other people. Yeah. And, you know, at this stage, those other people have, you know, other clients or, or other work that, mm. they're, that they're working on. And so, you know, I think that's because I have that restriction. It's it's helped me prepare um, it differently. And and I I don't like to be late. And you know, being last minute would stress me out more yeah. more more than the either. yeah yeah. I mean, having the stress to trade you know trading that stress for having like those that one piece in the collection or something. I just kind of feel yeah. like. Um, just skip it, you know, I th- self, how do you, how do you self edit? I mean, that's kind of what we're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Is that self editing process is really important. It's very intuitive. We do, we tend to do a lot of fittings. We're constantly trying things on and we're like, you know, how does this work? How they laugh at me because when we do, when we're doing a collection, you know, we do tend to, I tend to think on pieces individually at the beginning. It depends really, it depends on the season, but this season it's very like, that's really good. It would be amazing. And I was like, how is all of that going to work together? So I, I do some very quick drawings and like, just very, they look very goofy. And I start looking, as you say, like I, I see holes and gaps and I'm like, there is that missing or that is too much and we need to remove but it's it's really an ongoing process it's not like we do we can't afford to do like a collection and then get 30 percent out we just don't have the means to do that so we have to be very careful about even from the beginning where like this needs to work because there's no other way so yeah it's just a lot of fittings and trying and for me it is very important that i think from the outside it looks like we do something that feels very creative and but ultimately i think it's very important that the clothing the garments the products are very wearable and they feel good they're comfortable that that's that's really key to me so um that's why i also spend a lot of time at the factories and working with the artisans and and the craftsmen just because it's genuinely very interested in their knowledge and their process and it also influences the way we do things because i'm like i know they can work that technique out what if we change that thread for you know mohair and what if we actually did those shoes in you know this other material so yeah it's just very it's a test trial kind of journey yeah your now that you have a team, what parts of your process are, are you not letting go of? Are are you still making your patterns? Are you still overseeing the production? What have you been able to kind of outsource? But uh, what are you know? I'm sure that there are some things that you absolutely want to hold on to, other than the yeah, design. I mean, it really depends. I I mean. We are currently four full-time people, so it's not like a huge team. And uh, that allows me to have a really good overview of what's going on. I mean, there are things like the specific, especially production, uh, that I just, it, it, there are too many details. And once the product has been 
made and we've done the modifications for that go into production, it's just a matter of really liaising with the suppliers and making sure we get the uh, materials on time, all of that. I'm not, I'm not part of that. But in terms of patterns, like we were doing some custom made look today and I was working on the pattern just because I really like uh, pattern making, but it's, I haven't done patterns in a long time just because there's so many other things that need my, my attention. I love going to the factories. We do, when we do the produce, the way we work, we do the first uh, 12s at the studio. We do the first prototypes. And once we are like, okay, we like this, then we go uh, for about two weeks to my hometown and we spend uh, those two weeks making the brothers at the factory. It's very intense. It's very, very time consuming, but I really like it because it's very immediate. I It allows me to be like, you know, that I know that doesn't look good. Could we unpick it and redo it? So that's one thing I've never let go of, I think. I. I'm not the kind of designer that would do a tech pack, send it to the factory, come back to, I just think it's much better to like be there, see the machines, understand what, you know, the possibilities are, work with the artisans, learn from, from the process. And we do a lot of changes actually when we are there and a lot of ideas come and we're like, actually that would be an amazing showpiece for like, you know, what if we did that with that volume? And yeah, that's, that's one of the parts that I actually somehow struggle most with because it's very physical, but at the end of the day, I love most because it's just when it's kind of like Santa coming, when you start seeing all the different parts coming together, it just makes it worth it. Are you making everything right now in your hometown or where are you manufacturing? No. So we, the knitwear is done in Belgium. And I try to go once per season to do some research and, and go to the factory and, and kind of uh, work with them. And then the shoes are made very close to my hometown. The bags are made in South Spain and the woven is done between Italy and South Spain as well. So it's a little bit... But it's but still pretty produce, close to you. Yeah, which yeah, is nice. Very close. Yeah, that's very nice. That's, yeah. Do you feel that when you're, you know, you're going from Paris back to your hometown, does changing your environment kind of change how how you look at your work? I don't think it changes how I look at my work, but it changes it. I think going to my hometown kind of removes a lot of the pressure. Um, speaking to my family and my friends, who like a lot of them just don't, are not in this industry. It makes me realize that a lot of what I think are like very big problems don't matter to 99.999% of the world. And that is quite reassuring. Um, it's just very, it can be very heavy and it can be very daunting just because, as I said, it, this has moved from my passion and my, yeah, like a, my passion project into a business. And that comes with a big responsibility, deadlines and production and production backups and people that don't pay you on time and all that awful words, cash flow and this and that, something I didn't study for. And it, it just can't get, so, you're like, how did I get here? Like, I just really like 
experimenting and making doing fittings and clothes and research that how did I get here? So yeah, just going to my hometown kind of it removes the pressure and it's just like, you know what? I think ultimately what makes it worth it is seeing people wearing the clothes and getting messages from people are like, you know, I just bought this and I saved up to buy this bag and I'm just so happy and it makes me feel so good when I wear it and and yeah, I just keep reminding myself that. Yeah, that is a beautiful experience, you know, because I think we we do we do this because we have a story to share, but we also do it for others because we want to mm-hmm. we want to share that story. When you go home to you know work in the factories for those two weeks, are there places that? kind of put you in a, in a, maybe not put you in a certain mood, but it is, do you feel that there's energy at certain places that you will just go visit in order to kind of feel a certain way? You know, is, is there a, is there a building you like to drive by? Is there a place you mm-hmm. like to go eat? Yeah, it's very food oriented. It's for the entire team. So that's another one of my passions. I love food and tea and and that's something really I'm very happy to share with my team we love the food experience there it is so good we're all so excited for like our tomato toast in the morning with like a fresh orange juice and we have our spots like okay where are we going tonight for dinner and we know the people know us you know it's like oh you know Anna Amelia how are you so okay, you're doing like the brothos this season, okay? Like it's just it's very hands-on, it's very intense, it's a lot of driving and this and that. But yeah, I think being able and it, it again goes back to like, you know, growing up, this idea of like sitting down and sharing your day with your family. And uh yeah, that 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 makes me it's just very reassuring, you know, to go keep going to the same place, you know, the I don't drink coffee, but the coffee would be excellent. The toasts are going to be just delicious. And, and it's nice to be able to share that with them. So yeah, it's, it's definitely very, the, the great experiences that, that we get from those streets are very food oriented. Yeah. And, and you even, even include food in your collections before. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When looking at your work, I can tell that kind of multi-sensory experience is something that's really important to you. When when did that become something that you focused on? I think very early on, when we think of fashion and the way we consume fashion, it's images that come to mind, right? But really like fashion is something that we wear, we we sit in the tube with. We it's it's something that we touch and and that has texture and like even smells a certain way. When I think of like my grandparents' jumper, I certain scent comes to mind. It's it it is not only visual, and that's something that kind of bothered me, especially because through my work, I really try to create things that that you really that, that call for that call to be touched, to be felt in a way that is not just the eyes. And I just started reading a lot about that, kind of how we live in a world that's called ocular centric. And it's all about the eye and and the way we consume fashion, the way we consume 
a lot of things, it's just through the eyes. Whilst we are designed um, to feel many different ways. And I just thought, okay, how can we consume in a way that is just not visual? And I was like, what if we ate a collection? So that's kind of when all those ideas started coming to place. And when we started working with Celica Dinga from Caro Diario, who is a friend that now creates all these beautiful installations in Paris. And uh, we've also worked with uh, Dambi Kim, who is an incredible tea master. And I just think because of the way we we research and, and we create our garments, it's just so hands-on and it's, it, I can't let it just be an image. And I want to have that conversation with whoever buys the clothes that, that it's, we offer not just a garment, but maybe a way to experience those pieces. And that's how we've also chosen to to presentations instead of fashion shows because it allows for for a more sensor sensorial a more kind of wholesome experience in my my experience i was going to ask you about that because you did a show for your ma collection and then you did a show for autumn winter 19 during paris yeah. fashion week but then you did you left you left the show yeah you know you left the show style behind what why is it that you did that what what was the feeling you had when you did that those first two shows there's so much like intricacy and 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 so many details and it just feels wrong that all of that goes into like a four minute catwalk and i just it kind of i mean i change my mind all the time so you know, next season I might be like 80s, we need to do a fashion show and it will be great. But it's just that it's always kind of bothered me that we've been doing, using the same format uh, since the 50s. I'm like, there must be another way to showcase fashion and to invite people to like interact with what we've done and we've worked on for six months. And um, that's why the installations kind of so far have been the right uh, format for us. And yeah, I just, it's, it's kind of, I mean, I understand that it's, it's a busy week. Everyone, you know, you need to go from one show to another. It's a very quick, snappy way to, to get the shows and all, all the looks going and get an overview of what a collection feels like. But I don't know. I just talking about creativity. I think there's just so much that we could be doing. It's so exciting. Like that's kind of what moves me. Yeah. No show for now. Yeah. Oh, well, your presentations are beautiful. So I think the way you're doing it is is incredible. You've lived a lot of places. I actually didn't know that you lived in Ireland and Berlin. When, yeah. you know, architecture is something that you mentioned. I also wanted to be an architect uh, before I knew about making clothing. How do you feel that the, and because your pieces are very sculptural and very architectural as well. So I'm curious how you look at your work through an architectural lens. And I, I'm fascinated or curious to hear if it's if it has some lineage kind of from the places that you've lived. Maybe it does. But if it does, it's definitely not conscious. When it comes to volume, and I kind of have to trick myself sometimes like i put myself limits i'm like okay this season where like it'd be good if it was only flat and we're gonna work only from like you know flat table and see the the pattern cut 
table and see what that turns into. Or sometimes it's just like very 3D and kind of like a moulage exercise. I don't know. It's it's not that I look at um, at architecture and I get uh, directly influenced by it, but I think it's, yeah, it's that space between garment and self that is that intrigues me. And what, how that garment can make you feel or how that garment can help you um, portray yourself. And that's kind of, I guess, linked to architecture. And, but I don't think it's, yeah, it's, it's, I do it consciously. I noticed that from your collections, you generally, you're adding more structure or volume to the shoulders or to the headwear. Mm -hmm. Is there, is there a conscious reason that you focus on the shoulders and, and headwear accessories? I love a hat. My mother, she collects hat blocks and uh, I learned how to make hats when just ages ago. And my grandfather loved hats. He had a hat collection. And yeah, it's just something that is so easy to... It's an accessory that can change the entire mood of your look. And it's so easy to put on and off. And I just find it so playful. Uh, And I've just always naturally been, you know, been very interested in hats. And... And we always make a hat, but in a very, again, very playful, natural way, we would be doing fittings. And I'm like, just literally take what's at top, make like a, like a random duh, and just put it on. And that's it. And it looks great. It shouldn't be, you know, you shouldn't think about it more than that. And yeah, when it comes to the shoulder, I don't know, there's something, I think when I think about the idea of like feeling cozy and protected, I tend to like put my shoulders up, you know? Like it's that idea of like feeling like warm and cozy and yeah, there's something really nice about having your shoulders covered, covering your neck. I'm always cold by nature. So uh, I love to, yeah, to include those sort of pieces that are like, like a kind of scarf or like a big volume shoulder that kind of wrap you and make you feel. Yeah, I, I can see that because there is a certain fluidity that you like to add within the hats and within the shoulder pieces. Yeah, it's really funny talking to you because, you know, there are all these things that I'll be honest with you, I try not to think too much about any of these things that, that we're talking about. And it is really nice to hear you and, and to, to talk to you um, because it's things that I never analyze and that they obviously have a meaning. <laughs> yeah, and I think sometimes we... You know, one of the through lines I think I'm finding by having these conversations is that there are things from our childhood that we bring into our artistic life and and sometimes we don't think about it. And so it's really fascinating to hear that, you know, that about about your mom collecting the hat blocks. That's incredible. What are things from your childhood that you bring back? You know, I grew up in a mostly blue collar family with with no artists and no fashion designers in a very blue collar area. You know, I don't know if you went to Long Beach when you were here in in LA 
but you know, Long Beach is a port city, you know, and I grew up in a port city up outside of Seattle. So it's a lot of industry. It's a lot of, you know, there, there's not a lot of, you know, from, from the eye, it's not a lot of things that would grab you in any sort of way. It's kind of the place that you could drive by on the highway and, and totally look past. But so I think coming from, you know, growing up in a like rainy industrial area has an impact, which is why I'm so curious about your environment and why I've asked you about that. Also, you know, my, I think the biggest experience was growing up with a father that worked with in, in a non, in the nonprofit sector. Uh, my dad helped raise money for different nonprofits around the world. And, you know, because of that, I got to go to India and, and, and I got to go to these places that were really tough as well as, you know, I would go to the hospital with with my dad and visit people who were dying, you know, and he was he was intentional, I think, about taking me on these experiences because I think he wanted to show me what the world was really like. And viewing humanity in that way, kind of seeing this like, uh, you know, how most of the world lives. You know, I, I was so blessed growing up. Um, but I really was able to see like a lot of, a, a lot of hard things, you know? And so at the same time, there was so much life in those experiences. You know, when I went to India and I've been back several times and I even lived there when I was in my early twenties for a few months, you know, it was one of the hardest places to be, but it was also one of the most beautiful places to be in that, you know, the, the community was so encouraging and so loving the, the people, you know, I would, I would go to like a friend of a friend's mom's house to say hi or something. And I would end up sitting with her for like three hours because she would make me tea and, you know, like the chai and all sorts of things, you know? So it, you know, I was around people who had nothing, but you know, uh, nothing from a worldly perspective, but had everything from a, you know, uh, any other perspective, love and, and faith and other things. And so that's one of the things that I'm always kind of thinking about is this relationship between life and uh, materialism, I guess. And so I think, you know, consciously that's really what I'm thinking about and kind of the, the, um, you know, my themes kind of surround humanity in that way. Um, but at the same time, I'm sure there are a lot of things that I don't, uh, that I don't think so much about, you know, I was heavily involved in sports when I, when I grew up, like maybe sports has, has some kind of reason that I do what I do. Um, my, my grandpa dr drove buses for a living and he had a woodworking shop and he used to fix bicycles for people. And I, and I was with him every Sunday. And so, you know, making things in the wood shop, you know, and the, the feel of what that place was and the smell of the wood. I mean, these are just things I'm pulling out that, you know, I, I don't think about too often, but 
it must have some kind of impact, which is why I'm so fascinated, you know, uh, by by your story and kind of hearing about the things you think about. This is so, I'm so happy um, that we got to talk because I didn't know about um, this and hearing about it, it makes total sense. Like it makes total sense that you lived abroad, that your father was involved in nonprofit, that he got you to, um, it was, it was quite, um, quite impressive for him to like bring you to work and, and to, cause were you young when you were going to like hospitals and yeah, I mean, my my dad had he had a lot of people in this in our city that would call him if something was wrong. Mm-hmm. So domestic abuse from somebody, they they would call him to to come and try to help the situation. If someone's son was, you know, we had to pick, you know, we had to pick somebody up from the the police station because he was, you know, found on the street like high on drugs or. You know, so people called my dad to, you know, come into these situations and be a light, I guess. And so, you know, sometimes he would wake me up at midnight and would would take me on those trips with him. And so it, it really was intentional. And he he never was forcing me to to do the work that he did but i think he just wanted me to realize that you know this is this is how the world is and, and not not in a pessimistic way at, at all because it was often a really beautiful experience you know and so i saw i saw these parts of life that were that were difficult but you know often when you're given the chance to be a light to somebody, even even if there's nothing you can offer them, you know, it's one of the more fulfilling experiences you can have. Yeah. Just just showing up for somebody in a really difficult moment. I think mm-hmm. in our world now, it's it's easy to have you know lots of uh, lots of friends and acquaintances, but as soon as something hard, you know, as soon as somebody's canceled or as soon as something gets hard for yeah. people, you know, we can in general can disappear. Yeah. And yeah, for sure. I think being there for people is is really important. And um, yeah, so that's uh, you know that uh, that's one of the more conscious things I'm I'm always thinking about uh, through you know, and I'm looking at it through an artistic lens. And that's usually where I'm you know not that my not that the themes I'm focusing on every season are directly related to that, but it's you know I always think about the phrase memento mori you know the which which means you know de- death finds you you know we are we're all uh mortal yeah you know this life is short and so you know i i try to not get too dark with it but um <laughs> you know but but that is what i'm thinking about a lot of the time what's your relationship with color and how do you think of color in your collections. It's something that you focused on from even your MA show. It's very intuitive as well. And I'm not sure I'll be able to explain it. It's just that I am, it depends on the season, the collection, but I'm always drawn to, I think it's very difficult to work with colors. I was, it's, it wasn't always the case for me that I felt very comfortable with, with it, but I, it was 
really a big part of my research during my MA collection. And it's kind of has stayed part of the brand and, and kind of part of that language. But I guess, again, my upbringing has, has a lot to do with it. But in general, I just don't know how to explain it. Like we spend a lot of time at the studio choosing colors and choosing what goes with what. And it is very intuitive to me. It is that must go with that or this specific, you know, absent green just looks awful with that red. And I don't know how to explain it. I do spend a lot of time kind of working out the colors. And also because we work a lot with dead stock fabric, some of the colors we get are what they are. And it's that kind of game to try and balance it all out and make it work because very often we just need to work with those fabrics because that's what's available. So yeah, I just don't know what the answer to that is. It's just that I I try loads of things out and discard what doesn't work and and kind of keep moving. I mean, yeah. for sure. I mean, very often I look at paintings and I'm like, that is an incredible use of color. And that makes sense. We must incorporate that. That inspires me a lot, actually. Paintings, certain artists, I just think they're like color wizards. And I like looking at their work and the way they, they mix them. Is is there a reason that you decided to focus on, you know, more colorful collections as opposed to more, more uh, muted colors? I think during my MA, yeah, it was... Um, I think when I think about things that catch my eye it always has to do with scale color and uh i was just doing a lot of research and and looking at cer- certain sculptures and they just had uh, incredible colors compared to others that were more muted and i was like it's just that i'm naturally drawn towards that there must be a reason to that and if it does that to me you might do it to other people so that's kind of how i intu- intuitively um got into it i think i'd be really curious to know how the diablo shoe came about this is something you made for did you first make it for your ma collection or was it your yeah. first show your ma collection ma yeah and you still you still carry it over to this day but i would love yeah. to know the the beginning of that and what that idea was so when as I said, I got into the masters knowing that I was going to use that year and a half to really build the foundations of what my brand would be, not knowing what having a brand meant at all. But I've always loved shoes. I've always loved uh, bags. And my mom, again, she's always had a crazy collection of shoes. Like we would go to like vintage markets and we would like just, she would just, pink her shoes, put like laces and these and that. Like we've always loved shoes. Like really, she has um, really amazing shoes. And when I was doing my MA, I I was like, it. I need shoes. Like it can't just be any random shoe. It doesn't make sense. I always think when I think about clothing, when I think about the collections, it just never is only about the clothes. It's really about the whole environment, the whole presentation, the whole 
every single thing needs to be studied and, and needs to make sense. And when I was doing the fittings, just putting any random pair of shoes on just didn't make sense. And we, we started, my mom was over for like a weekend and we started like, we took a last, uh, that I had, uh, like a, a shoe mold and we started with plasticine. We started making some experiments and I've always been called Bambi because I always had very skinny legs. And uh, my mom was like, well, what if we make hooves like Bambi, you know? And I was like, that's so cool. And we started kind of trying things out and we were like, this looks so good. And I started making collages and it made sense. And, and that's when I showed it to the course director and he was like, these are great. You need to make them. And I got introduced to, to an incredible uh, designer and shoemaker, Alim, in London. And we made the first pair of Diablo together. What, was she also a student at CSM? No, he was already... He, he was designing uh, as a freelancer and making shoes for a bunch of people in London. And he just wanted to work with some students to like kind of try out, but they are so, I don't have them here, but because I'm, I'm at home, not at the studio, but they are so long. The first ones they were very difficult to walk in, but I was just so proud. And, uh, it was really amazing to work with him, go to the atelier. It's, it's very technical to make shoes, which I love. And I've learned so much throughout the years. And, um, yeah, it's something I, I love. I love making shoes. I remember when you and I, we're in the LVMH prize together and we were talking and Bernard Arnault was walking around and talking to everybody. And I saw you and I was like, what did, you know, what did you talk about with Bernard? And you were like, you had said, you know, he looked at the Diablo shoes and he was like, I bet you sell a lot of these, huh? I mean, he said something to that effect, <laughs> yes. right? And you were like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, when did you know that you really like had come up with a great idea that was also going to, you know, commercially be successful? I think a lot of, from the MA, a lot, we started getting a lot of people to, stylists to really want to use the shoes for photo shoots and all of that. But I, again, I think all of this makes sense to me, any of these, if people can wear them. And I was like, I want to wear those shoes. So we need to make them into like a product that is viable. So that's when we started going to factories in Southeast Spain. There's a big uh, history of shoemaking uh, very close to my hometown very lucky by the way and my mom and i were like we need to make this happen like i was like mom we don't know how to make shoes you've never made shoes in your life i haven't this is this is, doesn't make sense this is crazy she was like we let's do it so we just rocked in we just ding dong at factories and we're like hey how are you we want to make these shoes and people were like these girls these women are just <laughs> they don't know what they're talking about and we started kind of working with artisans, small, you know, artisans that kind of knew their craft. And every first, first reaction was like, this is just so impossible. It's going to be so complicated to make. And that's when my mom and I uh, started trying making it ourselves. Uh, so my mom bought a few tools and she was like, we're, we like, I'm sure we can 
we can make this happen. And um, when we make the first uh, the styles, people wanted to buy them. And uh, we made them so they were very comfortable and very light. And that's kind of how it's... I was thinking, like, if my mother wants to wear them and I want to wear them, then I'm sure a few bunch of other people will want to. And, so you guys um, bought the tools to make the yes. first mold of the shoe? Yes, yes. Amazing. Yes. We know how to make shoes. Drew, we learned, like, <laughs> by doing it. <laughs> I mean, fo footwear is generally, you know, uh, it seems like the reason a lot of uh, new brands don't start footwear is because it's so difficult and so expensive. Yeah. But you kind of fell into it in a way. What did you yeah. learn really from from making that first pair of shoes? It's so technical. I think what, I mean, to be honest with you, the only reason why we make shoes is because the factory is 40 minutes from my mom's place and she gets to go every week. Um, it's a very complex process. Uh, I think to make our shoes, there is between seven and eight artisans involved into making one pair of shoes. It is so technical, but it's just such an old craft and it's so beautiful. I've learned so much. I've struggled a lot. I've suffered a lot also because we have a very complex shoe to make and we want to make it comfortable, but it's been amazing. It's really this four, this last four years have been, uh, you know, like a PhD on shoemaking, on the technical sides of, yeah, even bags. So yeah, it, it, it takes, it's, it's been very grounding because I think that's also often the case. Uh, there is a real disconnection between the consumer and, and what it takes to make the garments. A lot of people don't know what it takes to make their shoes. You know, you just see shoes and I'm like, oh yeah, great. But actually when you dig into what the whole process and the hands that, um, and the trials that, that, that take to make that pair, you're like, whoa, it's, it's just. Was it the toe box that was the most difficult part of making that, that first mold? It was that, and I'll be honest with you, it was also the fact that, and maybe you have the same issue, I think people, factories, just don't, can be bothered to make things that are complicated to make. They want to make what they always make, the pointy shoe, the squirt shoe, the round. It's like, why not make what we've always done? And we're like, well, because the whole point of having my brand is the fact that we offer something that they can't find anywhere else. And it's that's that's the grind that we have to face with pretty much everything we make is uh, that uh, opposition from uh, from the factories with the minimums and uh, and uh, the technicalities of, of of things that is always I think that's the most complicated. When you after you made that first pair was and you were able to dial it in, ha has it been easier to make different versions of the shoe? In that you know you do a booted version, you do a heeled version. Or does, is it almost like starting from zero every time you need to do a new style? No, it's much easier because I think more than the style itself, it's been difficult to find the right people to make our things. That to, in full honesty. And we have now found them and they're amazing. But that's, it's been such a, you know, battle to find 
the right, yeah, the, the right factories. When using dead stock fabrics, can you can you use dead stock fabrics for the footwear? No, that's more complicated because I'd love to, and I need to find some time to really do more of that. But it because it's more technical, and it's just we work with fabrics that we know are gonna make do the workout. It's just not as easy as with clothes. But yeah. That's definitely something that we we look to to incorporate because it makes sense. Yeah, I, I I'm curious if within your work using the dead stock fabrics, do you feel that those are those restraints help you with the creative process? I am a maximalist. And I can go on and on and on, and it's just like I get. I'm a perfectionist as well. I can be can drag, and it's a way to frame the work. And because I, we don't only use dead stock fabric, but we really look for really nice, you know, alpacas. We had some last autumn winter, and some just really nice fabrics. It that constraint really helps and frames. The, uh, process and it helps me. Where are you going to to find these fabrics? We do. We've now have a big archive. We work with a, a a variety of companies that that focus on on taking stock from like big houses that, for whatever reason, either it's you know a few hundred meters that they can't use for the productions, or the rolls have a s- slight issue. But with our patterns, we can go around. It's it's just a mix of sometimes going directly to meals and some of the times is working with with um, companies that focus on reselling those uh, fabrics. But we've now created like a kind of archive and uh, we try to go at least once per season to do some research and kind of understand what the options are. And also it's, it's great when it comes to production because we kind of uh, don't have to wait for the meals and the fabrics to be produced and we can go straight on. Which can be a huge problem. Yeah. Yeah. Do you do the same with the yarns? Do you use dead stock yarns when you're creating your knitwear? Often we've started doing that. Uh, Like our latest autumn winter, we we use some dead stock, but it kind of depends more on the factory. And because we don't have as many uh, contacts with the, the meat kind of world, it makes it a little bit more complicated. So we kind of rely on whatever the factory has uh, in stock. Yeah. Are there, other than, you know, the uh, fabric constraints, are there other restraints that you put on yourself creatively to, to bring your vision to life? It really depends. I mean, money is a constant <laughs> constraint. That's a big constraint. Which is um, a blessing I, and I a know. curse, right? Yeah. Absolutely. You have to put the best idea forward. A hundred percent. And it's just like, I believe that, you know, because you put more money into something that it's not going to make it better. So I like that. I like, I thrive in those sort of environments. Like I like to be given, you know, a situation and be like, that's what you have and you need to make the most out of that. So that is, I think that's our big, biggest uh, constraint. But 
I think with the presentations, it's a lot of the time is that we create installations where the models or the performance have a lot of freedom, which means I don't really know what's going to happen. And I will have full kind of decision and power on it. And I kind of like that because I think as designers, we can be very, we can get very obsessed with how something should look, how something should be photographed. And we forget that actually we're making clothes that are going to be shipped to the other side of the world. Someone's going to wear them in a completely different way that you imagined. And I find that so fascinating. And that's why when we do presentations, I try to bring that element of just having absolute no take on that. Like the garments, the collection is done, the garments are made and now it's put out there and it's not up to you. And there is a real beauty on that. And that's kind of also what I try to bring to the presentations. Yeah, I I recognize that, you know, your your pieces are very conceptual or they can be, but you also are able to contrast it in a way that has a commerciality uh, aspect to it. I mean, there are pieces that are very wearable and there are pieces that are very conceptual. Yeah. Is there is there a way that you think about those two those two aspects of the of the collection? Is there a certain amount of commercial pieces that you're thinking about when building the collection? How do you go about that? It's been a journey. I didn't used to think about that at all, but I am a consumer myself. And I was like, you know, I wear this all the time, like whatever it is, it, you know, it it makes total sense. And now it's, it's, it really is when we're at the studio, as I said, it really is a process of very personal kind of conversation of, of the four of us being like, would you wear that? Does that feel good? How, you know, how is that? Can you see, can you, are those pockets deep enough? It's just very practical things, but that makes sense. And I, I know it, it, it can seem quite conceptual, like because of the imagery that we put out there, but really, I, we spend so much time thinking about, the finishings, the technicality of the bags, the, and it's so often the case that people come to me and they're like, Oh my God, that pocket was so, it's so rightly placed. You can fit your passport. And I'm like, thank you. Cause we put so much effort into that, into the shoes being light into that is so important to me because I have no interest in just making something that would stand in a museum and no one could wear like what really fascinates me and what I think you have to be very uh, kind of bring a lot of creativity on is to make something that looks very exciting, but that also feels very exciting to wear. And that allows you to move and allows you to do your thing. I cycle to work every single day. Like obviously this doesn't have any, but I'm wearing my fairy pants and they're so amazing, nice, easy to cycle on. It's just, it, everything is cycling proof. Everything. <laughs> I did not know with you wearing a hoodie right now that you would be wearing the the furry pants. That's of amazing. Of course, of course. <laughs> One, I think my favorite things that you make personally is the knitwear. I think your knitwear is incredible. And I loved the recent collection you did with the, you know, knit masks that you did. I would love to know how you think about knitwear and what you enjoy about the process of making the knitwear. 
I think knitwear it's it's got its own it's its own life it's its own thing and uh, we work with an amazing factory and I we do a lot of research it really depends on the season but I like for example when we did uh, the hot mess jumper it's like this it kind of feels like a hairy chest that's kind of really well, the reference where that we were like how how can we recreate that into a knit and there's just always so much back and forth. And what I find so beautiful about knitwear is, again, the technicality of it. And it's the same with shoes. It's just that it's not about making something that looks beautiful, but it's just so intricate. And there's so many elements that go into it. And it's literally with knitwear, it's programming, you know. And I really like to push those boundaries. And I'm like, okay, what if, you know, we do that but it actually needs to be loose and i i don't obviously i don't know how to program a knit machine but i think i know enough to know where i can like pull and push and kind of be like i'm not sure we can do that but what if we try and um it's uh yeah, I thank you so much. I really like that you mentioned that because it's it's not what we are known for knitwear, but it's something that uh, we put a lot of time into. And and yeah, I love knitwear. In particular, you have. I love your knitwear as well. Oh yeah, well, I mean, I I love knitwear, and it's um the reason I asked is because I love the process of it so much because it is so different than cut and sew. I mean, because with cut and sew, you can as long as you have a fabric. You know, you can make nearly whatever you want, but instant. But with knitwear, you know, there's so many. uh, Just depending on the yarns you use, there's so many. Mm -hmm. uh, You know, it could be much more rigid in the process, and it can be. It it just has its own difficulties, and it has its own problem solving. But yeah, I just love your knitwear so much. Do you do you also hand knits because you have these distressed the distress sweaters that you make are just incredible. Are those hand done or you also program those? They're machine done, actually. They're machine done. I can hand knit very basic things. My great grandmother was doing incredible crochet things. And it's funny, I still leave off some of those reference. And I collect a lot of uh, vintage as well. And, And I look a lot of... Yeah, like the, the the finishings and I'm like, okay, what if we actually did that in, you know, it's it's a mohair, but what if we did it in like a merino wool and what if we change the tension? And yeah, it's, it's I have like, same as with uh, our dead stock fabric, I have a big archive of uh, garments and reference just for knitwear. Yeah, I like to play with those and, and, and work with the technicians too. The masks that you made this last season, were those hand knit or did you also program those? So, no, these, uh, so we were doing the, uh, we, I actually didn't make those. We were doing the fittings for the show and I was doing research and I saw this person that was making these masks and I was like, these are incredible and i wanted to 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 get them um it's a fetish person that's mass for like fetish and i i asked if you know we could work together and and he did those for the, for us yeah it was incredible what models hated us yeah 
the models did because it was because yes. it was itchy or what? Because <laughs> yes. they had to be there yes, for four hours. I, <laughs> yeah, they're like, this is awful. I was like, no. Um, yeah. It was interesting how it how it brought the collection together. Um, and I'm curious mm. why, w- what was the idea behind that? Because, you know, up and uh, up until this point, you you had never covered your model's faces, really. But it was a strong focus on this last collection. Yeah. To be honest with you, it just kind of made sense. We also, again, when we talk about constraints, casting in Paris is very complicated, as you might know. We just couldn't have uh, uh, certain models and certain models wanted to do it. But they, you know, sometimes the agencies put issues and we said, well, the only way to do it, if it's we actually covered their faces. And I was like, okay, well, I know this guy. I'm obsessed. I've wanted to work with him for a long time. And it just made sense. But it, it was a mix of the need to with the fact that we wanted to, to do it for a long time. So yeah, that's, that's again, when constraints can actually help you think around. Yeah and make something exciting. It, it seems that collaboration is not the focus of your work, but it is a large part of it. What makes a good collaborator? I think there's not a... I wouldn't describe a good collaborator, but a good col- collaboration is really finding someone that whose work you admire and you let them do their thing. Like literally when I work with someone, if we're already if we're like having that conversation, it's because... I like what they do. And I'm like, yeah, just do it. I'm not too, like, I don't believe in adaptation and people adapting to, that's not what I'm interested in. If we reach out to someone or someone reaches out and we're like, this makes sense. I'm like, that's the whole point is for that person to bring the work to different dimension and I like to just give people the space to do that so that's how we we've kind of gone around it I think so far I I think it's it's uh in our world it's really important to find things you love and and people that you love and allow allow them to make their own magic in a way yeah a hundred percent is that similar to the relationship that you have with your stylus? Uh, I'm curious. I'm curious how you work with your stylus for your shows. So, I Kamoshita. She's amazing. Normally, the way it works is we we do the collection, and because we now are selling during menswear, but showing during women's, means that we are finished almost three months before the show. So she comes in and garments, everything is done. And we just like have a full day of like playing. And that's when we, it's, it's, I would, I bring, it's not just about the clothes, but it's about putting the team together. And she'd be like, why don't we work with this other person for makeup? Like Christabel, Christabel got introduced uh, to us via I, and she's incredible. And we've worked with her for so many seasons and she's just so good with makeup. So I would come, we would start doing that exercise and she'll be like, 
what if we, I don't know, would do something in the head? And she, she would kind of give us a little homework and then I'd just be sending her hats or we would be doing that look in different colors or bigger, some show pieces. And that's kind of how it, it comes together. Yeah. Do you feel that, you know, working with a stylist reveals something about the collection that you weren't necessarily looking at? A hundred percent. I think it's just so refreshing when she comes and I'm like, I would have never put those two pieces of clothing together. Or I would have never thought about that blanket in that way. Or yeah, that's the whole point. Like that's, that's why I admire her. And I like, I like and look forward to her coming because she really looks at something that you've had in front of you for six months with a complete fresh different set of eyes and it helps and it kind of like brings a new you know energy into the studio and we're like oh wow okay you know that makes total sense we would have never i don't know how 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 do you do it Uh, do you work with a stylist yeah, I, I worked with Karen Bins the last two collections, um, but that was the first time I had ever worked with a stylist. I think at first, you know, I was doing the styling myself for our lookbooks because I think I had been thinking about these looks for a long time and I was thinking about them in a certain way. But I think what's important about bringing in a fresh set of eyes is that they're kind of coming into a blank slate. You know, I mean, they see the garments, mm. but, you know, they were not along on the process. I think in, in some ways the process can can maybe taint how you, you... Yeah, it can trick you. Yeah. It can taint how you feel about uh, some of the pieces. And so, you know, because you're already thinking about a silhouette in a certain way, you're going to put things a certain way. Whereas working yeah. with, you know, a, a, a stylist is going to help you, um, you know, they they have that fresh set of eyes. And I think, you know, and, and shooting the collection it is a really important part of it, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, you've done most of the work up to the point, but I think a really good stylist can like look at that and just give you that that little yes, something sure. something extra just to add just to add something different i i think you know one of the things that karen said to me uh, when we first started working together was she said drew your pieces are very masculine and that's okay you know but like i want to add a little sexiness into what you're doing so it's not really about changing the idea of it or or changing mm-hmm. the feeling but it's just adding that little bit of something extra that you're not thinking about during the process, you know, and giving it a little life in another area. Yeah. And it, it kind of brings a different, it, it's the it's same thing as when, you know, you, you ship the production and someone buys it and where it's in a completely different way. It just, it's a different point of view. And very often, I mean, in our case, it really elevates it and it helps push the story forward. And um, yeah, I I really enjoy it. I would love to ask you about the Vogue Fashion Fund. So this time last year, you won the Vogue Fashion Fund Spain. What what was that process like? I mean, you and I were in the LVMH prize together. Drew, like you've done your homework. 
<laughs> I'm prepared, Paula. <laughs> wow. Like, no, I, re- I remember because I, I, I texted you then because I was, you yeah. know, I was, you know, so excited for you. As you can tell, I, I love what you do and I want you to win. So, but, but I would love to know what that, what that process was like. And then I would love to know if that's, if that's changed the trajectory of your brand at all. It was very nerve-wracking because the other two finalists were my best friend and someone I studied with who is also a, a close friend. So it was it, it was bittersweet because we all knew that if we didn't win, someone we loved would win. But we also knew if we would win, that meant that two people we loved would not get that prize. So it was bittersweet, but it was great. I mean, it's, I think very often when you talk about prices and you think about obviously the monetary implication, but I think, I think it meant a lot, obviously for us in terms of what it meant morally to have that support and to win. It just can be so, so difficult. And it was just a great feeling to be supported, to win in Spain and have family around. And and Vogue Spain has been just very helpful. They also create content for you. And uh, we, we did a photo shoot here in Paris that then got published in their, I think it was in their January issue. So yeah, it's been a great experience. And I think it's just so important to that these things exist because it's just so necessary and it can help tremendously. And but even even when you don't win, you know, I think what was incredible about the LDMH as well was that we got to meet each other. And we wouldn't be here today if if we hadn't hadn't been for the LVMH prize. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, I think it can feel very, very lonely. And I very often have to face situations that I didn't study for, things that I never learned, that no one taught me. And I sometimes don't know who to go to to ask for for for, for advice. And it's just really nice to talk to you, to talk to other peers about their experience. And it's just, we all go through the same uh, struggles very often. It's got to do with production. It's got to do with cash flow. It's got to do with management. It's got to do with the pains of growing. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's very reassuring. And uh, yeah, it felt really good. Yeah. You know, the community aspect is so important. When, when I was, went into the LVMH prize, I was assuming that it was going to be very competitive and, I was surprised by how lovely everybody was. And and yeah. I think, you know, fashion, it's a microcosm, I think, of how fashion really is. You know, your brand and iRay can exist within the same world and both can do great. And I think, uh, you know, yeah. I learned that being with you at the LVMH Prize. You know, you had the best young designers in the world all in one room and everybody was encouraging each other. And, you know, after a long day interviews, we all went and had dinner and it was, you know, you you can, if you wanted to, I guess, treat it like a competition. But in reality, art doesn't feel like a competition. We're, we're all on our own journeys and, you know, we're all discovering and rediscovering things about ourselves and about our process 
And I think we can all exist in that moment and still root for each other. Absolutely. And, you know, that's also something I've learned that there's not such a thing as winning, losing. It's just, that was also something at St. Martin's. It was very competitive and people that I thought would be doing incredibly and they aren't necessarily doing what they thought they would. And I just think life is always in constant flux and you don't know what, you know, that small seed that planted that conversation, that friendship that you started through that, you know, the image price could take you in like five years time. So yeah, I think if there is, I don't know about you, but one thing that this journey has really kind of taught me is patience. I'm not very patient. I am very hardworking and I like to see results quickly. And I, yeah, I, I just really go for it. And it's a very long path that requires so many different components. It's such a complex puzzle that you really need to be resilient and patient. Absolutely. I agree 100%. I'm learning that as well right now too. I would love to know, last question, I feel that along my journey, there have been a few times where I've been discouraged and there have been uh, serendipitous moments, almost as if angels came down and were, were with you. I would love to know that if you've had one of those moments and which, which one comes to your mind first. I mean, so many. Um, first was that call from Kanye. I wouldn't have the brand now if I hadn't gotten that job with him because that funded the brand. I didn't know I was going to do my next presentation. I didn't know how I was going to go into that, uh, production. And it was just that call that came out of nowhere that helped me, you know, get my get things in motion. Um, but very often is the case. And sometimes it's not, it's, it's, it doesn't take like, of course there are those very key moments that you remember and you're like, whoa, you know, that's just, it's insane that happened. But very often it's just literally like a coffee with your grandparents and listening and listening to them and their struggles. And you get to understand that it really is a journey and things not being perfect right now and not being just, you know, the way you expected them is natural and that you need to be perseverant and, and consistent. And I think that pays off. I want to think that. Absolutely. That was beautiful, Paula. What was your moment? I want to know your moment. Oh, there's, I, I've had a few. One time I was in LA and I was in, uh, I, I used to live in the Silver Lake area and I was at Intelligentsia and it was 6 p.m., which, which I would never go to a coffee shop at 6 p.m. And I forget what it was, but I was feeling particularly discouraged at that moment. And this was before I Ray. Um, this is when I was, I was working retail, you know, I was probably like, you know, maybe 25, you know, I, I, I was working on clothing, but I had no brand. And I look over and I see Alessandro McKelly sitting there. Um, and he was, he had, you know, he was at, he was at Gucci. I forget how long he was, 
he was there at the time as the creative director. Maybe it was a year or two, but uh, I think he was, you know, at the time he was the most, you know, important designer as far as everybody was concerned. And I was just in awe. And so, you know, I went up to him and I got to have a conversation with him. And um, it was, he was very sweet. He listened to me. He, he talked to me about making clothing. I can still remember what he was wearing, you know? And, you know, so that was just one moment. I think it's always seemed to happen when you need it the most. Another moment was when I, I think it was my second collection was in stores. I got a call that John Galliano had bought one of my pieces here in LA. And then, and and I was, you know, of course I was uh, hearing that was on cloud nine, but then the next day he went into uh, Dover street market, which were also stocked. And my friend was like, John is here. You should, you should come down. So I got dressed as, as soon as I could. And I, you know, drove, I drove to the store and I was able to walk around with John for probably an hour and a half, just walking around the store. I walked him through the collection, whatever was on the racks. And I got to talk to him about, you know, being a, being a young designer and pursuing a dream. And I, to this day, it makes me emotional thinking about it, you know, because you, you have these moments that you're just, you're just in awe about, and there's no, there's no way to, there's no way to kind of describe what it means, you know, when you have, when you have people that you view as your heroes that now are appreciative and loving of what you do. I feel like that's one of the best experiences as a designer that you can have. Yeah, that's, that's, I agree. That's magic. When you see that, um, people you love wear your clothes, people you admire, artists. Yeah. That feels very special for sure. It really is. And Paula, I admire you and I appreciate you doing this. So thank you. Thank you so so much. Happy. I'm so, so happy, Drew, that we had this call and this catch up. And um, thank you so, so much for inviting me.